Hello, legends, and welcome to today's show. Catching up with Cub, as always, is brought to you by Cub, the Club of United Business, Australia's number one members club connecting our country's top entrepreneurs and business leaders. At Cub, we say we are your business family because that's what we are. Today, I'm catching up with one of the longest standing Cub members, uh, one of my great friends, one of my greatest mentors, particularly in the topic that we're discussing today, which is leadership. His name is Adrian Hondros. He's the CEO of Porter Davis, one of the largest home builders in the country. He's been the head of uh, some of the largest private banks in Australia, for, for example, Combank, NAB, and he is just an incredible, incredible human being. We had a brilliant conversation on leadership, communication, leadership through crisis, crisis times, um, the economy over the next two years. It, it was just, a, it was a great conversation, jam-packed full with important facts, figures, and, and tips and tricks that are going to get us through funny times that we're in now. Uh, Hondo is one of my personal mentors, and I was so grateful that he gave us the time uh, to mentor all of us, the listeners, uh, today. So I hope you enjoy the show. And we're live. We are very lucky because today I'm sitting down with a great friend of mine, uh, one of my dearest mentors, one of our longest standing Cub members, uh, Mr. Adrian Hondros. Welcome to the show, Hondo. Well, thank you, Daniel. Great to be here, mate. Thank you. Also, uh, well, we kind of got lucky because you can't go back to Melbourne, so you're stuck here in That's Sydney right. and we grabbed you while we could. Yeah, well, at the end of the day, I'm a Sydney sider, mate, so I'm here. And Hondo, you've, uh, as I mentioned, you've been uh, a mentor of mine for many years now and on a range of topics, but particularly one thing you've always um, given me is a wealth of of your of of knowledge on the topic of leadership. And uh, I mean, you, you've had an incredible career because you came up through the financial institutions, yep. and, and you end up being, you were the head of uh, Combank Private, yeah. Uh, and then you kind of pivoted, pivoted your yeah. whole life, yeah, moved from Sydney to Melbourne. And uh, are now the CEO of Porter Davis uh, uh, Home Builders, yep. um, one of the largest home builders in, yep. in in the country. Is it you build over fifteen hundred homes a, a year. year? Yeah, that's correct. Um, and you manage both like a bank and a building company are completely total opposites, like we yeah, said yeah. before. And yeah. somehow it's your fundamental skills in leadership that I'm sure. Would you say that that attributed to being able to do that? Yeah, I think so, mate. I think that. Um I think what I wanted to find out was, and through my own career, is just find out, was it possible to change industries and take the knowledge and the skills and experience that you had to another, to another industry and just see whether it worked or not? Mm. So it was a bit of a risk, yeah. I guess. And the inspiration came from my time at INSEAD. Uh, so INSEAD's the uh, business school, the leading business school in Europe and actually recently voted the number one business school in the world. It's in France, yes. In France and uh, the campus in France is in Fontainebleau. Mm -hmm. South of Paris, which yeah. is familiar territory for me, for yourself. That's yeah. right. So, um, uh, amazing place to be. Uh, and I had a month there in November of 2015 uh, with 60 people from around the world, and you have a complete immersed experience on campus. And they basically pull you apart and put you back together again. Is that right? Yeah, it's really it's really fascinating at both a professional and personal level. And uh, at the end of the month, there you have to make a, a commitment to the academic staff and the uh, alumni. 
And the commitment I made was that uh, I was going to make a dramatic change in my career. I wasn't sure what it was going to be or where it was going to be or when it was going to be, but I'd committed that within 12 months of leaving in November of 2015 that I was going to make that dramatic change. And the main reason that they all felt like I should was that they thought I was just too comfortable in what I was doing. I wasn't being sufficiently challenged. They weren't suggesting that I wasn't happy. Uh, they weren't suggesting I wasn't successful. They just didn't think I was being sufficiently challenged and they felt that uh, it was time for me to throw the cards in the air a bit and see what I could do. Well, I actually I, I forgot that because I yeah. remember when you went to INSEAD. Yeah, yeah. But so you were you were still the head of Combank Private at that point. I was. Yeah. You you went to INSEAD and you th- basically they literally said, "Hey, you should change career. You, you're not." Yeah. You're not and the irony it. the and irony of that it. is that the Commonwealth Bank funded. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, spewing. So they've funded you know the. 35,000 euros to go to oh be there God. plus the airfares and accommodation <laughs> whatever. So let's between friends, let's call it 50,000 euros. Oh, my God. Uh, but I think that, uh, you know, I was blessed because uh, Ian Rev was the chief executive at the time. Uh, he's no longer the chief executive. He was at the time. He appointed me to the private bank role and he could see, I think he could see that I needed a change or a challenge as well. So he and I agreed that the best thing to do was to go and have an experience somewhere. And I looked at Harvard, I looked at Stanford, I looked at INSEAD, uh, and they gave me an open, amazing, so the Commonwealth Bank was amazing to me. What a great culture. They gave me an open opportunity. They just said, you find something anywhere in the world and go and do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, what an amazing invitation to have. Yeah, and, yeah. and it's such a beautiful thing for such a, a large institution yeah. to, to have that sense of freedom and, and willingness to, to, to develop even their, their I guess, most um, – experienced uh, yeah. leaders like like yourself, I, I think that's real special. I think just an important point there. So one of the things that I think we all need to keep in mind is that it doesn't matter what your experience, what your tenure, how long you've been in business, how long you've been a leader, there's always opportunity to grow and develop. Mm. And I think that's, that is, you know, we've chatted before about leadership and what are the learnings. I think one of the key learnings is that that's a journey that it never ends. So you can never arrive one day and go, I've done it, I've made it as a leader because circumstances change, things change, organisations change, markets change, economies change, COVID-19 comes along. So whatever it is, and changes constantly everything. changing. Yeah, it <laughs> yeah. changes everything. So how can you ever claim that you've made it? You've got to always be willing to grow and develop. Which begs the question, you just got to enjoy the journey. You can't totally. You can't wait for the yeah. destination. Yeah. And, and um, uh, just one last question before we go back and – I want to hear more about your life and how you got to this position. Yeah. But it was a risk to move massive, from massive um, a bank which you were safe, you were like you said you weren't yeah. being challenged, it was easy. You I know you loved the role yeah, yeah, and loved you loved it. the bank loved and yeah. um and you you went somewhere just completely polar opposite. What 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 made you, what gave you the courage? What, what pushed you hard enough other yeah. than your peers at INSEAD to do that? Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. So the INSEAD experience was fundamental. Um, there's a guy called Ian Woodward who's an Australian. He's the professor that leads what they call the Advanced Management Program mm-hmm. and that's the program I was a part of. And they say that within 12 months of doing the Advanced Management Program, two-thirds of all alumni make a significant change. Now some might change their partners, their um sexual orientation, their career, like someone, they make significant change. Life changes. Life changes, yeah, big changes. Uh, and uh, that was a really key driver. But I've also got to say, even though it was early days at Cub, 
I think the Cub environment with its energy and enthusiasm uh, and you know, so many members there, even though it was only early on in the Cub experience, a lot of entrepreneurial members who are relatively young and they just seemed to be able to do anything, or at least they believed they could. Mm. And I remember looking at some of these members thinking, wow, if they think they can do that and they're, you know, in their 20s or early 30s and have only maybe got a few years of experience, I'm like, surely I can, you know, go and do something different. So even the cub environment did add to the, add to uh, I think my motivation, perhaps yeah. even my courage to do so. That's and then incredible. also, and I'd also say, mate, just having an incredibly supportive uh, family as well. So my wife, Emma, you know, willing to back me in to make that significant change. You can imagine from her point of view, you know, why is my husband who's running the private bank at the Commonwealth Bank talking about leaving the Commonwealth Bank without a job to change careers and, like, you know, it's a very – it can be quite challenging. It's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's almost unheard right? of. Yeah, it's quite challenging. But she was incredibly supportive because at the end of the day I've got to be happy in my career. It's, you know, 40 years of, of career when you're said and done so you want to be happy with it. Uh, and she could see – she knew that I needed to find something new and different as well so she was – I think very alert to that as you well. You the support of the family. Yeah, yeah which is critical. Isn't yeah. it funny? You, so you joined Cub um, in early 2016. Is that correct? Uh, no, no, it would have been, would have been maybe, wasn't it more like late 2015, mid-2015? Really? That I think early. so, yeah, I think so. It only opened, so we turned five yeah, in around. October of 2015. So oh, it must have been just after. Maybe. Yeah, well, then yeah, you must have been right up. That's yeah. at the very start. Do you remember how different it was back then? You're right, everyone, yeah. everyone was younger. Yeah, yeah. I was 23. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was it was. Totally, oh, you were a baby, seriously. It was seriously. totally different, yeah, I know. <laughs> right. It was totally different. It was very different. And do you remember when... But between when you decided to change from the bank, yeah, when you were homeless for a while, in, in yeah. that you didn't have an office. That's right. You would, you would, you were, you were at cub with me every day. Mate, exactly, that's exactly right. <laughs> so I can tell you, July of 2016, uh, you know, I finished with CBA on June 30, 2016. From the first of July 2016, all the way through to really the end of September, I was at cub most days. That's right. But that July, I set myself the goal of trying to run 200 kilometers that month. I got to about 195 um, and oh, I set myself the, the last five. Couldn't finish the last five. <laughs> <laughs> God. I was pretty tiring. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, and I was just mad. Like I was just appointments and interviews in Sydney, appointments and interviews in Melbourne. I was literally racing between both cities, racing around both cities, just determined to work out what that next thing was going to be. And I had a view that I just needed to build up a really high level of momentum and activity and then something would pop out. And there were quite a few different things in different industries, but the Porter Davis opportunity emerged early, uh, and was the one that sort of found its way through. Yeah. And what made you what made you um, choose a building company, like a, a developer, a, a construction? How how did you go from financial institution yeah. to a construction company? What what why? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, not not that it's yeah. a bad thing. No, 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 I, no sure. I'm a big fan of the construction yeah, yeah, company. Yeah, right. That's the, I might be in one of the best industries and future yeah. industries for, for our country. So yeah. I'm very construction. I'm just curious, yeah. why construction? Yeah, well, I didn't actually go looking for anything particular. So it wasn't so much why construction. I was more looking for, you know, the chief executive opportunity. The reality is, is that anyone that's worked in a big company would, would appreciate this. The reality, if you're in a big company like the Commonwealth Bank, and I'd worked in a lot of different big companies, even though you can be a very senior member of the organisation, and even though you can like have your own bit, which I had, in the private bank, and I'd had that previously at NAB, for example, where I'd run NAB's private bank. Uh, even though I had my own bit, 
and I had almost complete control of it. When all's said and done, you're not the chief executive of it. There's a higher board and there's other people involved and you don't really have the autonomy that you have when you're actually the chief executive of a standalone company. Mm -hmm. Whenever you're leading a part of a group, you kind of don't have as much flexibility as you'd like and you have to follow the party line, the company line from time to time because the group's decided this or the group's decided that, which may well be the right thing, Mm. but it can't always suit all parts of an organisation. There's always compromises to be made. And so I really wanted to find out what it was like to actually lead a standalone organisation where there was myself and the board and that was it uh, and that we could work out what to do and do it. And by standalone, yeah. do you mean private, private company? No, private enterprise. or public, private or public, but as long as I was actually at the, top. the chief executive of it, mm-hmm. yeah, whatever it happened to be. And I didn't mind what industry. I was looking at healthcare. I was looking at funds management. I was looking at different things at the time. And it just so happened that uh, Porter Davis was the one that sort of came through the pack and made the offer. So yeah. stole your attention. Yeah, that's right. And, and um, let's go back to your upbringing and mm. where you're from. You're from Perth? Yes, yeah, originally, yeah. And um, your uh, your family's Greek, are they? Yes, yeah, yeah. And um, and uh, tell us, what was your what was your childhood? How did you get into the corporate world and how, how did you get to uh, the top of it before you entered the top of the of the uh, private enterprise? Or? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, um, uh, yeah, so Greek, Greek family. We were what my dad would have called anglicised Greeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so dad made the decision with mum um, to... Uh, assimilate rather than be separated in the community. So we were the most Aussie Greeks that our <laughs> yeah. that our family knew. Um, you know, we were the only cousins that didn't go to Greek school. Yeah. All the other cousins went and they looked at us with envy <laughs> at every family gathering. When I reflect back on it now, it actually would have been quite handy better to speak Greek. But anyway, you only make you only make the decisions as you see it. So um, uh, yeah, so we were quite anglicised and quite integrated into the rest of the community rather than separated. But that was a deliberate move by mum and dad to I think they felt that that was the way to be in Australia. Mum was born here, mm-hmm. as was her mum. Uh, so for a Greek family, we'd been here for quite a long time. Dad was born in Greece uh, in a little island called Kastelorizo or Kazi. And Kazi's where a lot of the kind of more successful Greek families in Australia, particularly Perth and Sydney, have come from. I hear that from every Greek family. Oh, my family <laughs> from this island. That's where all the success <laughs> was. <laughs> well, I, well, I'm actually telling the truth. They're not. <laughs> so, uh, you yeah, know, the, the Kazis have done pretty well in Australia, uh, which has been which has been cool, you know, the Paspalis, the Kalises. Well, I mean, you didn't, uh, you didn't drop the ball either. Yeah. No, we did all right. So, yeah, so there's a few few of the families have done well and, and Dad was uh, a business person. So uh, as it turned out, you know, construction was in my blood. So uh, he started his own building company in 1963 in Perth and built a lot of houses in the northern suburbs of Perth. So uh, I... Um, do you think that had a bit of the appeal? To I you? think it was always in the back of my mind. Yeah, it was a bit of serendipity. Yeah, That's funny that whole notion. So when I think Porter Davis turned up, I remember saying to them at the first interview, "Oh, you know, I've got a bit of a connection with this," and they really liked that actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, it's like anything. I think people in construction like to hear that people have had some sort of connection with it in um, your blood. In my blood. Mm-hmm. So um, that was a great background uh, to have, and I did work in Dad's business for quite a number of years, just as a teenager and. As a young adult, um, just part time while I was at uni and stuff. Do you ever um, have any entrepreneurial experiences as a as a young kid? Do you ever have any little side businesses? Yeah, I was pretty keen to make a dollar. Yeah, <laughs> so, tell us, tell us. Yeah, so uh, I used to clean my dad's offices, of which there were a few. And uh, I reckon if you have to clean something, you really do appreciate other jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, cleaning out people's ashtrays because people used to smoke in the office, and 
washing out ashtrays and Fishing cl- Greek cleaning toilets. And, <laughs> oh, yeah, it's pretty ordinary stuff. Uh, but it makes you appreciate things. So, yeah, I used to clean some offices. I had a pool round where I went and cleaned the pool. I was literally the pool boy. Um, I had a few of those in the local area. Five, How much did you get paid? Five bucks a pool. <laughs> That's good. That would have been not bad though back then. Yeah, right? not bad. Yeah, we're talking yeah. about uh, the early 1980s, so, you know, late 70s, early 80s. So five bucks a pool. I think Dad paid me 10 bucks an office to clean them. Uh, and but my, I think my most formative experience was uh, in Perth in the suburb of Subiaco. I uh, worked at a sports store. There was a German guy called Ziggy. Ziggy ran the sports store and he got me a job or he offered me a job which I took. I went basically walking up down the main street of Subiaco. It's where the Perth football, main football ground used to be, AFL. And uh, so the sports store was well known. I walked up and down the street just looking for a job and spoke to Ziggy. He said, yeah, I'll give you a job, mate. You can come and sell stuff, um, sporting gear, and I'll pay you two bucks an hour. I'm like, okay, sounds like a fair deal. <laughs> so two bucks an hour at the age of 15. I worked, worked three hours a week, you know, Saturday mornings. Dad had dropped me off and picked me up. And I was pretty good at it. And, uh, you know, having been brought up in a business-type family and, of course, real estate and everything's run off commission, so mm. I understood. And so Ziggy turned to me one day and said, you're not bad, mate. Um, what about if I put you on $2 plus 2.5% commission? I'm like, Okay. I Done. can do that. <laughs> Done. Um, and I thought, okay, oh, well, well, I want to work a few a few weeks leading up to Christmas because that's where all the sales got made. And so um, uh, I'd have people walking in, mums walking in saying, oh, I'm looking for a cricket bat for my son. I go, okay, cool. What else do this, does your son do? Oh, he likes to go to the beach. He likes to, okay, well, what about if you're a cricket bat and a boogie board yeah. and what about some flippers and and so they some sunscreen. <laughs> sunscreen. Yeah, and so they'd come in looking for one thing. They'd walk out with five things because <laughs> I was totally motivated to sell them. Right, I wanted to sell them yeah. stuff. And so if you're selling a few hundred bucks worth of gear and you're getting two point five percent as a fifteen year old, that's adding up. Yeah, uh, and especially then, when your base is two dollars an hour. <laughs> yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly right. And then he put me on five percent commission. Whoa. So now people are coming in asking for cricket balls and they're leaving with cricket bags. <laughs> With bats and wickets and pads and gloves and you name it. And do you think um, those early experiences really give you lessons that carry totally. over in, in your adult life? Yeah, I think so. And, and and going back to that, yes, absolutely. And I think even going back to that question of leadership, um, Ziggy was a business owner. He'd be deceased now, bless him. Uh, but he wasn't a very good manager of people. I mean, I could tolerate him because mm-hmm. I could see the dollar. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I didn't want to hook my caboose to him longer term like yes. this was a passing thing. Uh, but I remember he would look down his glasses at me and sometimes nod or then shake his head and apparently I meant to know what he was thinking. And I remember thinking to myself at the time, hmm, if I'm ever leading people, I'm going to be a little bit more explicit than that. This is a little bit hard to follow. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. You learned that's what not to do. What not to do, mm. yeah. I think a lot of what I've learned. I think Daniel is really more about what not to do, unfortunately, rather than learning from people that I would probably more admire. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think also it would be fair to say that leadership really is a profession, if you like, uh, has come a long way in the last 20 or 30 years. You know, a huge amount has been written about it, a huge amount of academia exists around it. You know, business schools have built their reputations on it. But 20 or 30 years ago, it wasn't as prominent. It wasn't talked about as much. So it's come a long way. Um, and that means that in my early career, I unfortunately got to observe a lot of relatively ineffective leaders. Negative experiences. Yeah, yeah, which, again, it just causes you to go, if you can rise above it, it just causes you to go, okay, when I've got the opportunity, I now know what not to do. Mm. So it's a positive way of looking at some of the negative experiences. And do you also think it's just the mindset? Because if your mindset's wrong... 
you're going to be angry at the leader. You're not going to see the positive, which is, okay, well, I'm actually learning. I'm, yeah. I'm not – just because they're doing that doesn't mean I have to do that. It means that I can realise, oh, that's not effective. I'm going to do it different when it's my – Yeah, my exactly. It's a, it's a mind frame. It's a learning mind frame. Yeah, well, we would call that – I'd call that it's a growth mindset. Growth mindset. So if you go into something with a growth mindset, even if it's a negative experience, you can still learn from mm. it. And I think that's really critical, again, for people that are – Listening and watching, you know, what's for what's one of the key messages I'd say, even a negative experience, there's an opportunity to learn. Uh, and if you're going with the right mindset, even if it hurts or it's a negative outcome, you, you still learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about INSEAD. One of the one of the key learnings out of INSEAD is that they actually say, um, you know, you never lose, you either win or learn. So even the so-called losing is a learning experience. It's mm-hmm. really important. I just think it's really important. Thing to keep in mind, especially in these times of COVID nineteen and everything that goes with it. I, I completely yeah. agree. You, yeah. you either win or you learn. Unless you yeah. quit, unless you quit. Well, it's right. And exactly you right. give up, and well, then you lost. But yeah. as long yeah. as you don't do that, yeah, correct. And and so then, how did you go from two bucks an hour <laughs> with two point five percent commission <laughs> to five percent to five percent to, <laughs> to the head of a bank? What what? How, how did you move from Perth? What was yeah, that all process? that stuff? Yeah, I mean, education is really important. So I was obviously fortunate to have uh, my commerce degree from UWA in Perth mm-hmm. uh, and that's really important uh, and I was fortunate that at the time uh, there was quite a bit of activity in Perth so I got a graduate uh, opportunity, graduate program opportunity with a big life insurance company at the time called National Mutual. They then became AXA, uh, bought out by the French at the time but for many years uh, National Mutual was more than 100 years old as a life insurance company uh, and so they had a really great graduate program. One of the things they did for the graduates which was amazing at the time, this is 1987, uh, just before the share market crash. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's probably worth noting that there has been a few big events that have definitely influenced me mm-hmm. as a leader. The share market crash was one of them that came in October of 87. But prior to that, um, uh, the graduate program at National Mutual kicked off and I was one of a handful of people there in Perth. And uh, we had a particular guy called Owen Stickles and Owen was a trainer of people in terms of their public speaking, public presentations um, and their stage presence and performance. So he was a former actor that became a, um, an RAAF pilot. So it was an actor and a fighter pilot. Okay, I thought you. I wasn't expecting that. I thought you were going <laughs> to say right. he was an actor that became a coach for executives to end up polar opposite. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so actor, fighter pilot, who then became a coach. Mm-hmm. Uh, so amazing guy, and he had a, a fundamental influence on me. And so he taught me a lot about how to present and how to speak and how to how to project your voice and those sorts of things. And the reality is, is that um, if you can stand on stage and deliver confidently. A lot of people can't or they fear it. So anyone that can do it well immediately, rightly or wrongly, immediately gets probably overrated. Stands out as yeah. a leader. Yeah, immediately. Mm-hmm. Now they may not necessarily deserve that rating but the perception is that, that they're very good at that. Mm-hmm. Um, and also so it self-eliminates the others who don't, really don't want to do it. So they, they almost self-eliminate themselves. Yeah, correct. Oh, I'm too nervous to do that. She's going to take it. Yeah, let, and, 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 let that guy yeah, or girl do it. Exactly. Yeah, right. yeah correct. Yeah. So he taught me early on that it was important. He talked about owning the stage, owning a room, projecting your voice. It's a really interesting yeah, thought. I've really never thought interesting. about that. And what were some of the tips he's given you yeah, uh, so, in regards to how, how to do it? Yeah, so one of the things he talked about was if you know what you're talking about, you do not need notes. 
that's my that's my that's my yeah. trick. Yeah. I was going to say that yeah. when when I have to do the speech as a cub, I never read because I know if I read it, I don't know it. I'll yeah. normally just create the story so okay, I understand. Yeah, you, you know where this. you're going. Yeah, and yeah. then I have talk points, so I, I stay in line and I just get up and say that. And that way you're not reading. So you sound and everyone thinks, oh, wow, he's so authentic. Yeah. But really I'm just <laughs> – We know, are being authentic. Yeah, well, I guess so. <laughs> planned authenticity. You know? Yeah, well, that's okay. There's mm. nothing wrong with planned authenticity. Yeah, I, I mean, think it's great advice. Yeah, it was great advice. You're absolutely right. Uh, but also what you can do is if you want to add variety to it, to use pictures. Mm-hmm. So use pictures and it's okay to have the occasional word or prompt – but generally speaking, if you believe in what you're saying, you don't need notes. So just say it, and it doesn't. Matter. It's not about word perfect, uh, and quite frankly, no one knew what you were going to say anyway. So they can't measure against what you're going to say versus what you did say because exactly right. there's no measurement stick. Mm. Talk about what you know. Yeah, correct, and and be authentic about it. Um, and people love you just talking to them. What they don't like is someone reading from a, a speech. I agree. Um, so I just think it's, that's just a really critical. That was a really critical lesson. And to have the confidence to do it. So it gets back to, you know, if you're uncomfortable, then you're growing. If you're not feeling uncomfortable, then you're kind of standing still. So if it's uncomfortable to get on stage in front of a few hundred people without notes, maybe you've got some pictures on a slide or something, and just speak to them, walk away from the podium, which was another thing you taught me, walk away from the podium. The podium is like an anchor. Drop it, walk away from it, walk out into the middle of the stage and just stand there and face the audience every now and then move and realise that you've got the power to turn their heads. They'll follow you and wow, then stay yeah. in there for a while and then move and they'll follow you. Yeah, it's like being just Justin Bieber. <laughs> <laughs> Put up your yeah, hands, everybody. Don't think ever rose to those, those <laughs> giddy heights. <laughs> that would be pretty awesome though. But Yeah, it was but, a good lesson, and, the good and, lessons. And so, I mean, a, a key thing that you would recommend for any leader to do is practice your public speaking. Absolutely. Is there confidence to do so as yeah, well? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and just get experience. And, and what did that have to do with the crisis you were mentioning? You said the 87 crisis was a, a big moment and you think – did it have something to do with that? Or? Oh, not necessarily directly related to the public speaking mm-hmm. bit but very much in the leadership bit. So, you know, with the 87 crash, uh, I remember, um, you know, we were only 20 mm. um, and so we're out at the movies with some mates and in those days there's no – you know, iPhones or there's no way of knowing what's going on mm. until you actually read a newspaper or listen to the radio or turn on the television. We were coming out of a movie theatre um, and they'd put the morning headlines for the next day's paper already in the little stand uh, and it said, you know, share market crash, Wall Street, bloodbath. I'm like, what the hell is that? <laughs> were, you in the, were you in the game at that point? Were you no, not really. No, no, I mean I was 20. And, oh, you're only you know, 20. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I had about 2,000 bucks <laughs> to my name and my car. Or so a good commission too. Yeah, that's right. I spent all the sports good <laughs> yeah. commission. Um, and so that would be um, a stretching of the truth to say I was in the game. Um, but, uh, you know, I obviously started my career and was a few months into it. But uh, what struck me that day and the way the organisation then responded was a really terrific lesson and just reading what was happening at the time. I mean, up until that point, everybody wanted to be a stockbroker. All my mates that I knew were all quitting their jobs to go to the, at the time, the Securities Institute and get their stockbroking licence. Is that what you did? Everybody, no, I didn't, no. no. I mean, I went to the Securities Institute and studied, but I didn't mm. want to be a stockbroker and, and didn't plan to be. But a lot of people wanted to be because apparently that's how you made good money, mm. being a broker. Um, and, uh, of course, the music stopped, literally just stopped. Uh, and it was devastating for... A lot of people and a lot of them were first people in, first people out. Like, you know, they're the 20-year-olds 
running up to make their money and they get kicked out the door yeah, at the first sign of a crisis. Yeah. <laughs> Literally crushed, that's yeah. right. Literally crushed uh, and very hard to come back from there and took them took some of them a few years. What I learned out of that was that the unexpected is just that. It's genuinely unexpected and no one tolls a bell to say, oh, there's about to be a share market crash. It just crashes. Uh, and whatever your position is, good, bad or indifferent, it is what it is and you've got to take it. Uh, and sometimes these things can reverberate for quite a significant number of months or years and they actually devastate people's plans and lives and financial well-being and, you know, same old story, unfortunately, certain people's mental health gets devastated, they take their lives, you know, this is real stuff. Mm. Uh, and I was fascinated by the way different organisations kind of handled that event and I did notice that the company I was at at the time, National Mutual, I don't think they handled it all that well. It was poorly communicated Customers didn't really appreciate the impact it was going to have on them longer term. And the organisation, I think, went about it in a relatively, what I would describe as clandestine way in that it kind of slowly changed things in the background, knowing what it was going to do to its investment funds in due course and sort of drip-fed the information out to the policyholders and eventually people started noticing that their policies were worth a lot less. Mm. Started asking why and it was just really poorly Poor done. communication. Poor, well, really almost no communication. But that's a different world and a different time compared to now. I think there's a lot more transparency and people demand a lot more understanding about what, how and why. I want to, um, mm. I want to uh, talk about because you've, you've experienced and you've been at the head of some large organisations during some financial crises yeah. and I, I do want to talk about um, um, your experience in managing them and, and that type of thing. Yeah. But before we do, I just want to continue on the topic of communication. Yeah. Um, I know that uh, communication is one of your um, um, most important leadership, uh, I guess, skills and yeah. attributes. And, Probably and the, the most important. The I most say. important. Yeah. And, and you had um, an experience at Harvard with, um, what, what was their name? Your Would you say they're your mentor or was it – the lady, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, short. Uh, well, Imported Davis, we're blessed to have a, a program we call World Leaders 2020, and all of my broader management, which is about 60 or 70 people, have all been through the program, which includes one on one coaching with a professor by the name of Janae Jean Jean. Just to quickly on Janae, she's an amazing lady, amazing. Did um, I say her name was Barbara? <laughs> no, 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 no. That's, that's, a, different that's a different person. Okay. But I'll talk about I'll talk <laughs> right, about Janae, Janae and then I'll yeah. talk about Barbara. I was like, Jeez, I got that way. No, you <laughs> thought Barbara you didn't say it. Okay. That's okay. But I'll talk about Barbara. <laughs> but just with Janae, if I may. So just with Janae. So she supported our leadership development program at Porter Davis, and uh, one of the things that she does is one-on-one coaching with all of my leadership, and has done now for almost three years. So every month, those six or seventy people all get a one-on-one session with Janae. Wow. And she's got a business called Harvard Business Consulting. She's um, out of, out of uh, Boston, um, Boston Business Consulting and, and works, uh, works at Harvard. So uh, she's a fantastic person to have really anchoring our leadership development. And so what does she do? We should use that for Cub. So she, her business does what? Yeah, so she actually – so she built with us our leadership development program and it's an online portal with a whole bunch of different – material on different topics around leadership, organisational design, change management, you name it. But she also adds these um, one-on-one sessions with um, my management and they get a one-on-one hour per month with her to talk about what's important to them and to get her input and 
context and ideas and it's, yeah, it's fascinating. And what's her name, Janae? Janae Jean-Jean. Jean-Jean. So with Janae, um, so she's an American but she sounds French. Yeah, very French. Yeah, so the quick background story there is she explains it. She's from Massachusetts. Um, her mum loved France and so when Janae was born she named it Janae because that was a French name. But they're not French, they're How American. funny. She married, at a, she married her husband and his surname was, he's a Frenchman, her surname, his surname was Jean-Jean. So she became Janae Jean-Jean even though she's American. That's brilliant. <laughs> That's so, brilliant. I just love saying her name. Yeah, I me think too. it's just a great name. And, yeah. and so and is she, what, what was her relation to Harvard? Yeah, so she works at Harvard and has a consulting firm in Boston. Uh, and so the connection was, was that uh, Anthony Roberts, our founder and managing director, and Paul Wolf, one of our other directors and shareholders, uh, they went to Harvard and did the entrepreneurial course. Something you should consider, actually. Yeah, I need to. I've been, I've um, never... We may have actually chatted about that before, but Harvard's entrepreneurship course is um, profound, I think, for entrepreneurs. I think it's one of those things that you need to do it at, at the right kind of time in your journey and career. Well, at this point, any education would be pretty good for me. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon, mate, you might be approaching the right time. It is mm. for people who have been on the entrepreneur journey for a while. Mm. Uh, I would have thought that probably want at least five or ten years. So you're in the zone now. I just turned five. So yeah, yeah, so you're getting into the zone, right? So, But it's one of those things where you need some experience to then not only gain from it but to give into the into the experience pot, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, yes, that was connection with Harvard, which is how we ended up with, with Janae to help us. And anyway, for me uh, and for all of my leadership, she's been amazing and just tremendously supportive. And to the topic of communication? Yeah, so with communication and one of the things that uh, the leadership have learnt through the 2020 Leaders Program is this notion of the importance of, of communication and I would describe it as effective, empathetic communication. And the current crisis, I think, is a almost textbook example of how important communication needs to be. And what so, do you mean by that? Yeah, so what I mean by that is is that when all's said and done, people innately want to be led. So people want leadership. Now that doesn't mean they're not also leading and leading can be you're leading yourself as an individual, you can be leading your family, you're leading your friends, you're leading a business, whatever it is, right, there's a whole range of different variations on it. But in times of greater uncertainty and anxiety in particular, uh, people gain comfort from leadership, leadership that they believe is relevant to them and relevant to their needs, but also gives them confidence to get up and get on with it even though they might be feeling anxious or unsure. And so I just think in times of crisis and uncertainty, leadership really pays dividends because the leaders who can harness the organisation in challenging times where other organisations are faltering, um, those organisations, and I know we've chatted about it before, at we, as we would say at INSEAD, they don't just bounce back but they bounce back higher than they were. So the inspiration is not about bouncing back but to do even better than you were pre-crisis. And so this notion of getting back to where we were, I don't subscribe to that. I'd be saying never waste a good crisis. This is an opportunity for people to really double down on the things they intended to do in their business, get leaner, get meaner, get better. And so when business starts flowing more freely again, as it really has in Sydney, now not so much in Melbourne with the lockdown. I think that this is just a, this has been, I think, a golden opportunity. And interestingly, when COVID came along, one of the things that I noticed, there was quite a bit of um, reading around, have you got the right strategy? 
So a lot of people saying this is the time to check as an organisation. Have you got the right strategy or is it time to completely redo your strategy because the world's changed? And we reflected as a leadership and a board and as executive and a board and we decided, no, no, we've got the right strategy. So this isn't a time to change strategy. This is a time to double down and accelerate. So This is a time to get there more quickly. Uh, and quite frankly, in a crisis, people are just more willing to get on with it. There's less, oh, what about this, what about that? There's actually like, okay, let's go. And maybe, you know, our lives depend on it. Maybe our business survival depends on it. So let's not dilly-dally, let's just get on with it. We've got a strategy, let's go. And that's where the communication piece comes in because you need to be, particularly in a crisis, constantly communicating because when people feel nervous, anxious and unsure, they'll fill in the, if you leave them a gap, they'll fill it in themselves. And because of the way they feel, because of their headspace, they're probably going to fill it in a relatively negative way and that may not be correct. So don't leave them to it. Give them what they need to make the right judgments and right right decisions. So I think I think a lot of businesses have realised this, and uh, so we've been doing a weekly webinar. So I do a weekly webinar to the business. Was I doing that before COVID? No, no yeah. I wasn't. I wasn't doing this podcast yeah. before COVID. Well, there you go. See, yeah. there's lots of examples, right? And so I think that um, uh, as another lesson, and the lesson is to communicate, communicate, communicate. Um, there's do no there's no doubt about it. I have a question for you. I was thinking about this the other day. Should you communicate that, hey, something it, that, you know, it may get bad in the future? So obviously we're hoping it doesn't, yeah. even if it does, yeah. blah, blah, blah. But should you communicate, guys, listen, if everything falls to shit and the economy yeah. falls over, the country falls over, it can get real bad, right? But if that does happen, yeah. we have a plan of how to sustain, how to survive and how to be set to bounce back bigger and badder than ever. Yep. Um, or so should you put that out there for the team or should you not put that out there and have it for yourself? Because if you do put it out there, they might be, you know, they're looking for it. It's going to be bad. They're nervous already or they think it's going to happen. I'm actually very curious about it. I was going to call you the other day about this because I spoke to one person and said, no, don't say anything because, you know, they use it as an excuse. Or, yeah. and then, but in my head, I was also thinking we're pretty open as a company. We, we talk about everything together. I think it would also create a bit of um, security in that they're not going to be filling the gap themselves, yep. as yep. you mentioned. Yep. So I, I was just curious on your opinion on that. De- definitely put it out there. Mm-hmm. Now, arguably you should always do that, not even time of crisis, but I think it's particularly relevant. The reality is, is that people are, you know, they're lying in bed, they're sitting on their couch, they're in their car, whatever they're doing, they're worrying. Uh, you know, anxiety levels are high, uncertainty's high, people are worrying, it's affecting their mental health and a lot of it is just the unknown, the fear of the unknown. So even if it's bad news, at least it's news. Yeah, because nothing's worse than not knowing what's going on. Correct. Being in the dark. I mean, what, what, I'd say, you know, what would you prefer? Would you prefer knowing the bad news or just not knowing? You want to know. You want to know. Knowing is the half the fear. Yeah, it's that's like, right. Yeah, I agree. With yeah, that. And maybe the truth is actually not as bad as the fear itself. No, and at least we know yeah. there's a plan. So even yeah. if it does go to shit, well, we have a plan as a team, as a company, and, yeah. and well, the plan is that we're all going to be fine. There'll be sacrifices and it won't be easy, but we're yeah. going to be here, we're going to be good and whatnot. Yeah, and I think on that theme, so uh, one of the things I've taken the opportunity to do is that because of the lockdowns and, and the time that that's released, I've done a little bit more of my own professional development and recently did a webinar with Harvard and they had a couple of thousand alumni from around the world all tune in and uh, they talked about their most contemporary framework for leadership and it was described as leadership in a crisis. 
uh, and they talked about this notion of both the brutal truth and the rationale for hope. And this is along the lines of what you're saying. Give them the brutal truth. Hi, everyone. Great to have you here today. I just need you to know that the worst case scenario is that we may be out of business. You need to know that. Now, clearly we're not going to sit around and let that happen, but that is actually the so-called worst case scenario. So what are we doing to make sure that's not the case? Now let's go through. These are the things that we're doing to make sure that is not the case. You know, dum da dum da dum da dum and give people the actual plan. What's the plan? And then how do they participate in that plan? What's their role in that plan? Give them clarity about what's expected of them. So I had a number of my people say to me, well, what's expected of me? Like, what do I, what do, I do? I said, what you do is you talk to your leader, your team leader, your manager, you get absolute clarity about what's, what's expected of you every day, every week, every month, because everyone's working at home, so you haven't got that normal connectivity, and make sure that you're being measured accordingly. So make sure that you're delivering to what it was you were meant to deliver and there's measurement. So you can turn around and say, well, I've actually over-delivered this week on what was my expectations. That tick, that's a good week. So clarity is just critical. Data is really important because data is irrefutable, it's real, and it helps balance off everyone's feelings of fear and emotion. It also helps you catch the problem so you can see, oh, the problem's coming, the problem's coming, we can yeah. kick the plan into play. Or, yeah, or correct. It, it, you've got your eye on it. And I'm a big believer that half the battle is actually just focusing on that number or that figure. When everyone's focused on... The sales figures, the sales figures go up when everyone, for us, when everyone's yep. focused, when we suddenly, uh, like I know when we had a lot of clarity around our renewals, fi- uh, renewal figures, yep. then we had a goal, a plan in place. We measured it live. So it was live throughout yeah, the month. Fantastic. We're watching it go up every month. Yep. And then suddenly, boom, renewals double. You know, they didn't double, but they got, yeah, no. they got yeah. those high, much higher. And it was just because we we're, were looking at it. Yep. Yeah. I think yeah. that makes well, a big that, difference. There's that saying about what you measure, you can manage. So if you measure it, you're typically going to do better. Manage it. <laughs> Manage it, right? So, yes, yeah, so I think the, the communication piece is critical. Brutal truth uh, I, I subscribe to and have been certainly using. Brutal truth, ration, rationale for And then the for rationale hope. for hope. So you can't leave them hanging with the brutal truth. You then need to give them that plan. What's the rationale for hope? Why is it that now that you've told me the brutal truth, why is there hope? And so the hope for a lot of companies is, as the Prime Minister would have said recently, let's get to the other side of this thing and then on the other side there's recovery and further prosperity and opportunity, et cetera, which is true. I believe in that. And so for my business at Porter Davis, the rationale for hope has been, you know, we get to the other side of this crisis and people are keen to get on with building new homes. They've spent time at home. They've realised that they actually need a bigger home. Are they going to be homeschooling again? Are they going to be working from home again? Maybe they don't want to put grandma in the aged care facility. Maybe they want to have a multi-generational experience at home and have more facility at home to do that with more bedrooms and more bathrooms and more living areas. Maybe they need a home office. Maybe they need a home office. Exactly. So it's all those things. And a home gym. And a home gym, that's right. Yeah, Yeah, no, it's all that stuff. So they want to convert the garage into a home gym and all that stuff, right? So I think that our rationale for hope, which we have seen already emerge, is that people came out of the lockdown and most of our business is in Melbourne and Geelong. People came out of the lockdown determined to get on with it. Mm. Like I was – I'm really surprised on the upside. I was surprised on the upside, the degree to which the number of people that were keen to talk to us and to work towards paying a deposit and starting to build a home with us was really quite overwhelming in June. They really came out of the blocks. Mm. Now that Melbourne's gone back into lockdown this week, which is very disappointing, I think it's just a pause. It's just going to pause what's going to still and, come after and that. And also I'm finding, I'm finding that 
and, and I, whenever there's a change, everyone kind of pauses for a bit. That, that everyone's a bit unsettled. Yeah. The nerves go up. So you kind of all the companies. I know even for me. You know, like this week, oh, it's a bit annoying. We're back in. We had one of our biggest weeks ever the other week. Yeah, fantastic. And, you know, that's stopped now because it's closed. Yeah. And so you have this week of inertia. It's kind of like we've got to readjust, get used to it, accept it in our brains. Yeah. And then next week everything will – from what I've seen already, um, it, it's not everyone's first rodeo this time. You're correct. It's not their first exactly. rodeo. Also, everyone's fucking over it. <laughs> Everyone just wants to work. Let us work. Let That's us right. go to work. My yeah. my team is. Can we still go to the office? Can we still go there? I don't know. We follow the law, but but um, everyone just wants to. Yeah, yeah. Wants to work, and now they've had a little taste of going back to normal. Yeah, yeah. And it felt good. It felt real good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, especially in Melbourne. Melbourne is bars, cafes, restaurants. Social. Let's face Social. It. Social. Sporting Social events. Yeah. Big events. Social. Grand Prix, oh. you know, it's all those things. And and Melbourne's obviously just not anywhere near the same without it. And what's your opinion? I mean, you're in it. You've got a real interesting perspective because you've been the, the top banker and you've also been the top of the property industry, which is really the backbone of yep. Australia, yep. Of the economy. What is your thought on yep. the next? And I, I, by no means it makes – no one can know. This has never happened, so no one knows. But I'm just curious of your thoughts yep. uh, of the economy over the next six months even. Yeah, so um – you know, we're now in recession mm-hmm. and we haven't had one since 1990, so right, right now we're in recession. We are in recession. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's a so-called technicality. You know, we had a very small contraction in the March quarter to the end of March that was minus 0.3 of a percent and the forecast for the June quarter to the end, you know, three months to the end of the June is meant to be about minus 4.7. So big That's contraction, massive contraction. And everyone, not everyone, most economists are saying for Australia in 2020 ca- calendar year that the economy will contract by 3%. So minus 3% for 2020. And then most economists are saying up about 2%, 2 to 2.5 in 2021. So you still be minus 1, basically. Yeah, so overall minus 1. Bad. I read some stuff from the CBA today. They said that they don't think the economy will return to its pre COVID size until March of 2022. So the Commonwealth Bank thinks come March of 2022, the economy will be the size that it was at the beginning of March 2020. Mm-hmm. So really, if it works out that way, it means COVID caused us to lose two years of economic growth, which is, that's a big deal, that's right? A big deal. A big, How much of a big, big deal, deal is that? It's a huge deal. Yeah. <laughs> that's a you big, big you deal. You can't see his face if you're not watching the video, his eyebrows went up. <laughs> that's yeah. right. That's a yeah. two years of economic growth. That's that's, that's massive, fast, right? Yeah. Especially in a country, you know, we... we um, we set the record for the longest run of continuous economic growth in modern human history. So the Netherlands previously held that record of I think it was, I think they were 26 years and a oh, couple of years that. ago we knocked them off. Uh, so we had the longest run of continuous economic growth in modern human history. It's because we are the greatest country on the planet. <laughs> That's right. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. We absolutely are and the economic piece and, and just we digressing for a moment, are. just digressing for a moment, the notion of the lucky country, oh, it's all luck. That's crap. I agree. We're hard workers. I'm happy to accept that we're fortunate, but this notion that everything that happens is just good luck is ridiculous. Ridiculous. And and quite frankly, mate, our handling of the – putting aside the new lockdown in Melbourne, our handling of COVID-19 has been world-class. Exceptional. Unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Compared to all industrialised nations, hands down, we've done an outstanding job of it. We really have. And so you've got this – Funny period. So it's predicted that March of 2022, economy is yep. where it was before. Yep. Um, two lost years. Two lost years. 
But what's the positive? So what's what's the hope? I mean, that is the brutal truth. That's a brutal truth. What's yeah. the what's um, the hope? What's the hope? Yeah. We're going to be a much more efficient economy, and and the way we get there, productivity is the accelerator or brake of an economy. So productivity and your productivity improvement really sets the speed limit for the economic growth you can reasonably expect. Now, going back in time, what set us up, so putting aside this notion of luck, what actually set us up is the Hawke-Keating years of reform. So the reforming of the banking system, the floating of the currency, the industrial relations reform from the Hawke and Keating years, that actually set us up. It got continued on by the Howard government. To be an economic power. Yeah, yeah. It really set us up and there was a notion... You know, if we go back in time at the last recession, you know, back in 1990, 1991, you know, Paul Keating described it as the recession we had to have. And he got smashed at the time for saying it, but he was right. We actually needed the pain to then make the gain and reform ourselves. To make our economy yeah. more productive. Yeah, we needed it. We needed it. Otherwise, we were heading for what was called at the time the so-called banana republic which was going to be, you know, they used to talk about this notion of the South Pacific peso, which was the Australian <laughs> dollar. <us>. <laughs> and and just, just for some people just asking, so yeah. uh, as far as an eco- the economy becoming yeah. more productive, by that you mean that the businesses have to become more efficient to survive Co- in a difficult time. Therefore, when growth happens, they're more efficient businesses, they're more productive businesses. And they're more profitable. Uh, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so um, you know, more digital technology, uh, less error, less waste, less rework, less people. Mm-hmm. And people shouldn't be scared. That's part of the brutal truth. Mm-hmm. It's not something to be fearful of. The reality is is that get another job, find another opportunity. And I don't mean that in a harsh way. It's just that's Life. the reality. I've had to do it. People have to do it. It's Sometimes it happens. It's just what happens. So back yourself and go and find another opportunity. But the reality is if you're doing it in an economy where the productivity is improving, the economy becomes more prosperous and there is more opportunity. So it's a positive, not a negative. It might feel like a short-term negative, but it's a long-term positive. And there, our reality is that we haven't had, and there's plenty of data to support this, our productivity growth in recent years has been flat. So we haven't in the last few years made the gains that we were making a number of years ago, which meant that we were coming to the end of our prosperity in terms of our accelerated prosperity. So it's almost this is the crisis that needed to happen again. In a way, um, if there's a positive to all of this, one of them is this notion that Australian business has been forced to become more productive, forced in a way that was not going to happen otherwise. And it gets back to that notion of don't waste a good crisis. In times of crisis, make reforms, make change, create efficiencies, do what you have to do. People are far more receptive to it. Yeah. And I just think that I always relate everything to Cubs. That's all I know. But but we have not improved ever in our history more than we've improved and gotten better during COVID yeah. on all fronts. Yeah, I'm talking absolutely everything from yeah. teamwork, leadership, reporting, service offering, even members. Yeah. The member, lots of members are joining now and they're all really big companies because they're all companies still pushing through this yeah, thing. Yeah, for sure. Um, absolutely every aspect of the business now do, did i wish that this happened of course not no, no, because no. it was easy before and yeah. and um it was fun um but you know i'm a big believer in that for every down there's an up life has balance yeah. and and uh, if it doesn't wipe you out it's going to make you stronger and again you're going to bounce back higher than you were before than you were. i think that is the silver lining and that, that is the rationale for hope and i think i genuinely believe that's what's going to happen it's not going to be a smooth road i haven't been a subscriber to the 
magical V-shaped recovery. I don't believe that's the case. I've always been concerned there would be further lockdowns, almost rolling lockdowns. And that's what we're now sort of seeing unfolding in Melbourne, this yeah. notion of locking down, opening up, locking down, opening up. That can't happen and I, because it's it may happen, it's happening now, but, I mean, it shouldn't happen because I think that the mental state mm. of our public mm. is far outweighing the effect of, the, of COVID, the disease. You can't lock people, you can't expect a human being to be locked in basically mm. a cage in their apartment Right, whether you want to call it a jail cell or it's the same concept, you're mm. locked in. Right, we are not supposed to do that. That is not how we've evolved. That caused severe mental strain, absolutely, on yeah. on a human being to the point where the effects of which can be far worse than if COVID had hit them. And look, I'm not saying I have the answers, but I think, and this is way off topic, but I was thinking about it before. Even if they create, let us go back to work. Let us work. If you're young, healthy, if you're not ill and old, yeah. let us go back to work. At least if we're working, then you can tax us a COVID tax for now. Yeah. You know, and we can use that money to pay to keep the old and the ill safe. We can keep them home. We can have delivery services for food. We can until the whole thing is figured out. Yeah. But at least we're productive human beings. Right now they're saying to us, hey, all of you really healthy people that can contribute to society – Go, go to jail. You all have to stay in jail and we're all going to do nothing and nothing's going to happen. We don't even, as the government, know where our money is going to come from. Yeah. And I think yeah. that that's right. I think that, hey, you're healthy. Go out. Be a productive citizen. We can, we'll tax you even. I'm not opposed to a COVID tax where we pay a little extra money, yeah. maybe per team I'll member. A lot extra. Yeah. <laughs> well, whatever it is, just, yeah. to, just yeah. to pay to help the, our old and ill, yeah. to keep them safe. Yeah. And But at least I'd rather that than stop. Yeah. Yeah, look, mate, it's it's hard to know what the right approach is. Yeah, um, and there's probably and, not one. And there's probably, the thing, that's yeah. right, there probably isn't one because there's just so many complex trade-offs. This will be one of those things that in 10, 20 years' time people look back and go, oh, it was obvious. Yeah. How come you guys couldn't work it yeah, out? morons. Well, sorry, that's <laughs> with the beauty of hindsight it's obvious. Yeah. It's not so obvious while you're yeah. in the middle of it. It'll be taught in all sorts oh, of It'll be amazing, right? Yeah. It's going to be an amazing learning experience despite all the terrible aspects to it. It will be without doubt. It's going to be like hearing when you, you know, when you hear you hear about World War One and, and mm. how big of an impact that was on the planet, mm. on the globe. Mm. This is a, this is a, to a, to a similar Absolutely. stage, yeah, an earth-shattering global thing. scale and thing. And we're living through it and we're, and we're learning the lessons yeah. that are happening to us by living through yeah. it and it will yeah. make us all tougher. Yeah, I think it's I think it's really interesting that there is, as you say, we're getting off track, but let's bring it back to leadership because Please, I can yeah. But yeah. I, with this. So I think what one of the things that will happen is there will be, I think, massive studies on the effect of leadership on the spread of COVID and how different economies and countries did or didn't do as a result of their leader and their leadership. So it's early days. We're probably only a few minutes into the whole thing. But if we look around the world and look at the nature of the leaders and which countries have fared better so far and which countries perhaps are faring worse so far, look at the people leading those countries and draw your own conclusions. But you'd have to say that the President of Brazil and the President of the United States are being relatively ineffective. Mm -hmm. Their countries are suffering tremendously and will suffer tremendously. Uh, you have to say that in the UK the leadership was relatively ineffective. In Italy it was relatively ineffective. So there's a bit of a trend. Can you name a place it was effective? I think South Other Korea's been effective. Mm -hmm. Japan's a bit surprising that it's been effective. I just haven't quite worked out why and people are trying to work out why. <laughs> They've got so much technology. It's uh, the no, COVID I mean, scared of it. Australia's leadership putting aside political issues, it's been effective. I think so. New Zealand's been effective. Um, Canada, due to its proximity to the US, 
had a bit of a bit of a handicap because of the uh, the state of the virus in the US. But you'd have to say Canada's leadership has been relatively effective. So there's a correlation between the degree to which a population has been hit by the virus and the effectiveness of their leadership. Be really so cool it'll be a really study. interesting thing that that comes through. So I think that's a really it's and, a really key one to, to watch. And back to we're talking yeah. about uh, yeah the experience with Harvard and yeah. And um, I was um, mentioning uh, Barbara. Yeah, Kellerman. Uh, Kellerman. Yeah. Well, what was her impact on your? Yeah. So just uh, just briefly, just briefly uh, for those listening in. So another opportunity I had at CBA was the CBA assembled four Harvard professors to come out to Australia for two weeks and do a live-in with a bunch of executives. So an amazing experience. So I got to be part of that. And uh, interestingly, I can't remember the other three professors' name, but I can remember Barbara. I would have, I'd have notes on the others. But Barbara was the one that stuck with me. She was a New Yorker, uh, you know, practising her trade in Harvard uh, but had a really broad New York accent, so quite memorable. And I'm a bit of a fan of New York. So yeah, it's, hard, well, it's hard to forget uh, New York. <laughs> that's right. So anything New York I'm going to onto. Uh, and she was terrific. So she spoke about the notion of fellowship and she said to me, Adrian, when you go to an airport bookstore, uh, how many books do you see on leadership? I'm like, Barbara, many. There's many. She said, how many books do you see on fellowship? I'm like, I don't see any, Barbara. She said, well, if you looked hard enough, you'd see mine, as in hers. <laughs> but she said, that'd be the only one. I went, oh, okay. So I said to her, well, just talk to me about this fellowship notion, which she then lectured on. And so the notion of fellowship is that you can't lead unless people are willing to follow. And so more work needs to be done on why people do and don't follow. So it's a lot to do with the engagement of the people that you're seeking to lead and what's their level of fellowship. One of the really interesting concepts that Barbara talks about uh, in her books and papers is this idea of the beautiful follower. And so people um, familiar with leading and changing organisations would be familiar with the concept of change champions. So if you're trying to do something different, you're deploying a new system, you're changing the organisation, you might be changing the way you do a certain process. Typically what you'll do is you'll get people who are the change champion. They might wear a different coloured shirt or whatever and they're the ones that people go to to get reinforcement and confidence or, or skill around how to do the thing the way we're now meant to be doing it. So they're the change champion. So while that's a relatively straightforward concept, Barbara takes it further through the beautiful follower. And the beautiful follower is someone that naturally emerges out of the organisation. So they haven't been appointed. They're not wearing a different coloured T-shirt. They've, they've emerged out of the organisation because they truly believe. So they're what I'd call a fully paid up member. They're the ones that actually at the water cooler, at the bar on a Friday night, you know, wherever they see their mates on the weekend, they're the ones that are saying, oh, you know that presentation the other day? That was so good. We've got to buy into this. This is the right thing for organisation. They're doing the heavy lifting for the leadership. They're the beautiful follower. They're talking on behalf of... Spreading the word. Yeah, spreading the the word. Yeah, the disciples, Mm. exactly. They're spreading the word but they're doing it because they believe, not because they've been appointed or anointed. And so the power of... So the power they have with their constituents, which is their colleagues, is enormous because their colleagues go, how come you're so into this, mate? And he goes, oh, well, you know, this is why I'm into it. Well, she says, I'm into it because can't you see this is the right thing for us all. This is what it delivers. This is why it's great for the customer or great for us as an organisation. So they're the ones that are just unquestioning. They've got it. If the penny's dropped, they're in. But how do you create that beautiful follower? Yeah, so it's hard to know where they'll emerge but it gets back to the style of the leadership. So the leadership has to be engaging and empathetic. It needs to understand that there's challenges and difficulties and doesn't just all magically happen. But at the same time, they also need to be people 
who feel the environment is one where they can rise informally. So that they're not they're not they're not leaders as such. They're not managers. They're people within the business, and they just literally naturally rise up and say, "I volunteer to be a part of that. I'd like to get involved in that. I'd like to speak for that." It's a really interesting concept. Yeah. So you mean em- they embrace they embrace the it. the culture of the leadership? Yeah, but not because anyone told them to. They're the ones like, that just go. This this is the right thing. And so yeah. Barbara's studies on is her book and studies are on mm. followership. Followership. And yeah. and but did you learn how to create that followership? Yeah. So it's it's a really difficult thing to do, and it's about creating the right environment. And so there's lots of different elements. As I said earlier, the leadership has to be empathetic. So it's got to recognise that this is not a walk in the park. That this is actually hard yards. You have to be willing to listen. So everyone says, I'm happy to take questions, but okay, great. But are, are you, you listening? Really? Are you actually listening? Mm. And even if I ask you a question and you answer it, have you even listened to why I've asked the question? So why? So she talks a lot about the reasons why. Uh, and people have to be willing and sometimes it takes courage to stand up and go, you know what, I don't think this is right. I actually think there's a better way and I think this is what the better way is. And And you've got to have a culture that, People feel comfortable to do that. I was just about to say quite that, challenging. a culture that allows for people to have the courage to voice their opinion yeah, and their then opinion. also to debate it ferociously if need be. Correct. To the betterment of the group as a whole. Yeah. yeah even if your opinion ends up being the wrong one or the one the group decides against, yeah. well, at least you were heard. Yeah, yeah. You, it's If people don't feel they'll be heard, then they'll think, I'll just fold and not bother. You should oh. come to our quarterly meetings. <laughs> They're ferocious debates. Yeah, well, I know, I know debates. everyone that's in them, so yeah. I can imagine who they are. <laughs> we, we actually have a we have like a, a passion day where it's just yeah. like we just debate everything. It's fantastic. Like we scream almost. Yeah. And then we have a plan day, so it's like okay, yeah. we've everyone's got it out. This yeah. is all the things that came up. This is the plan. Boom, let's go. Action. It works really well. Oh, that's fantastic, mate. I think it's actually a bit of a lost art form in business. Uh, and if you look more broadly outside of business, just look across society. I think the notion of debate and discussion is being lost. People become quite polarised quite quickly. In fact, people aren't even willing to listen to someone else's point of view sometimes now. I think people have become unfortunately less tolerant, less willing to accept. I've got no problem. If someone's got a different point of view, okay, great. I like yeah. it I don't have to. Lesson. I don't have I to learn, agree. I, but, but I can hear why. Correct. I can try yeah. to understand why. It's so good to it's, – it's actually far more interesting for someone to hold a different view and find out why, to your point, than everyone just sit around agreeing. In fact, if everyone's sitting around, sitting around agreeing, there's something actually wrong. That's just not reality and either. So, so part of creating mm. a beautiful follower is creating the environment of which that allows people to have the courage to yeah. voice their opinions, correct? Um, debate and, and then agree and follow. Yeah, correct. And feel comfortable with and that. And feel comfortable to do so. And yeah. and so when you moved from the bank yeah. to the to Porter Davis, yeah. You you came in and you were the head of this. I mean, Port Davis is, is a long established company. How, how long? Yeah, we're twenty one years this year. Yeah. So you came into a very well established company. Yeah. How did you take the reins? What was the process of? of like, how did you did you just come in and go, hey, the guys, this is what we're doing, or what was your process? Well, I, I think I I definitely had to be careful because you can imagine uh, the general sentiment probably at the time. I would never really know, but the general sentiment probably at the time was. Why have they got a banker to run a construction company? Mm. Uh, and you need to keep in mind that the people are quite diverse through the organisation. So there's people selling houses, there's people designing houses, there's people building houses. So you've got some people sitting in display homes, some are drafting and estimating in offices. Uh, you've got people out on site 
supervising the building of the home. So you've got a very diverse range of people. And, uh, uh, you know, my sense was was that there was probably a general feeling around why have they appointed this guy to do this? Like, and to lead us. Yeah, and to lead us. Yeah. What does he know about building? Well, obviously not much is <laughs> the obvious answer. Um, and I decided that the best way to counter it was to acknowledge it. So uh, I think it was on day three we have this event called One Tribe and One Tribe is the three or four times you would bring the whole company together. So at the time, this is October 4th or 5th, 2016, and we're at Etihad Stadium, that's what it was called at the time, and we're in one of the big sort of function rooms. So there's probably the best part of 400 people in there. And uh, I've got my opportunity to, to talk to my organisation, and this is the first time they've seen me. It's actually at the time I'm... It's the whole organisation. It's yeah. almost the whole organisation. Yeah. A few that couldn't have been there, but almost the whole organisation. And at the time I remember thinking... Uh, on the one hand, wow, this is quite challenging to do on your, like, your third day. But on the other hand, I remember thinking, no, no, this is an opportunity, as in bring it on. And actually the sooner I can get in front of them, the sooner I can dispel some of their fears or concerns and help them realise that I'm not going to come in and just change everything. I need to actually spend some time to learn and understand. So I think the, the approach I took, Daniel, was to say, look, you know, this is an amazing opportunity. Uh, you know, I really do need your support. You know, I need to learn from you all about what we do and how we do it uh, and then in due course we'll work out how to do it better. But I wanted to give them every assurance that day that I wasn't just going to turn up and change things and I wanted to confirm what they thought, which was I knew almost nothing about building houses. Yeah. <laughs> but and at we, least they're not worried about it. Anymore. That's right. <laughs> okay, good. He's acknowledged that. Yeah. Uh, and I think that I could see in the audience, just looking across the audience that day as I spoke to them, and I had the best part of an hour on stage with them, and we did a Q&A and we did a couple of fun. The Q&A was actually really cool because um, it was really just interesting to see who was willing to stand up and ask. And what they were asked. And they asked all sorts of questions. You know, if you could turn back the clock and you were 18, what were the three things you'd do differently? Or someone asked, someone stood up and said, you know, do you know what a Waldorf is? I'm like, uh, it's a salad or a hotel, isn't it? Like They go, no, it's one of our houses. Okay, right, well, I didn't know that, but thank you, I do now. That house is probably called that after the hotel. <laughs> That's right, yeah. yeah. It was actually one of our better selling houses but I didn't know that at the time. Um, yeah, and that was actually, I've got to say that in terms of learning, perhaps maybe being brave enough to do a Q&A with almost 400 people that had never seen me before, it was kind of a good way to do it because it didn't actually matter what they asked me. It was really an opportunity for me to give people the chance day one, mm. well, let's hear from you, like what have you got? Uh, and and it's just really empathetic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just it, listen it, and you yeah. can win them over. You can you because as the yeah. leader, you really do have to win people over. No? You got to win people over. Yeah, you can't just yeah. come in as a tyrant. You have to. Yeah. People have to think. Wow, I, I want to be with this guy. Yeah, girl. I think I think my only goal for that day was just to help them help them think. Okay, he's not going to turn the place on its head, and he's not a bad bloke. Mm. That was all I was trying to get to that day. Yeah, and I think yeah, simplicity. But yeah. I think like one thing that kept coming up while you were speaking that I was thinking about is um, well, you were saying why um, uh, the board brought in you as to lead a construction company, a, build, a building company. I actually think that it's fucking genius. I, they're geniuses. Do you know why? <laughs> I know a lot of the big developers. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And none of them have, they wouldn't have done big that. corporate backgrounds, big yeah. banking background. And what do you need in building? You need finance. You need the banks behind you. Yeah, you yeah, need yeah. to understand the economy and the process yeah. of it. And it brings an element of um, sophistication to the business, yep. uh, which other developers may not have. I think, and, and which leads me to my leadership point, 
you must, any leader can really think about themselves and what is my strategic value as a leader? What is my point of difference as a leader in comparison to my comp- the leadership of my competition. Yep. What do I bring? Yep. At Cabo, I was young. I, I grew up in business, a family business. I understood the business people very well. Yep. We look very different to the old in- leadership institutions. And sure, yeah. yeah, up, yeah. We're more innovative because yeah. we're, we work harder because we're ambitious. We, I have a strategic difference. Yes, absolutely. You've got a heavy strategic difference in your industry and it's almost like a leader should sit back and say, what is my – what is the strategic value I bring based on who I am? Yeah, based on my life. Yeah, I think it's a good call. There's no doubt that uh, um, you know, first and foremost, uh, Anthony Roberts, our you know, shareholder and managing director. I mean, it's himself and Paul Wolf. Paul Wolf, I mentioned earlier. I mean, it's really on their behalf and on behalf of the board. Not about pointing me because they could have gone and found a range of different people. It's about the fact that they recognise that they had plenty of people in the organisation who knew how to build houses. But how many people in the organisation had other skills and what did they need to complement what they already had? How many people knew yeah. how to run organisations yeah. kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, that's and, right. And um, you've been through how many economic crises in your career? Oh, well, the, the 87 crash, the 1991 recession. Uh, and I should mention, I mean, the 1991 recession was devastating for my family business in Perth, my dad's business. So uh, unfortunately it wiped us out mm-hmm. and it wiped a lot of businesses out. Uh, and that was very hard to deal with. But again, I think what it taught me was you can come back even from that sort of adversity. It also taught me to plan for the worst and hope for the best, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a line I've been using certainly within my leadership of Porter Davis recently and they've heard me say it and, and I'll keep on saying it. Another because, very smart man said that to me yeah. the other day, plan for a depression, hope for a recession. Yeah, well, that's right. <laughs> you know, it's, There's nothing wrong with you have to have plans. You must have plans for a worst-case scenario because you need to know how to deal with it. You're going to want to survive it. And if it doesn't unfold or even if it goes nowhere near it, fine, good, no problem, happy, got no issue with it. Uh, but you can't hope for it not to happen. That's your, your responsibilities mm. go far deeper than that. Yes. You must have plans for a worst-case scenario. You can't hope it not to happen. Obviously you don't want it to happen but you can't just sit around thinking, I won't worry about it. I want to ask you how mm. to create a worst-case scenario plan, but before I do, yeah. I want to just continue on where we were. Yeah. Uh, so you went through 87, 91, 06, or was it? O- yeah, so in 06, 07, so the, well, that's when the GFC came on. So I decided in December of 2007 to leave NAB after seven or eight years and I joined HBOS, uh, Halifax Bank of Scotland, which was based in Edinburgh and London, uh, and I was chief executive of their wealth management business in Australia. Uh, and that was in started in March 2008. Uh, on that Easter weekend of March 2008, they started shorting the HBOS stock on the London Stock Exchange. It was the first sign of the GFC emerging out of London. Oh my God. Um, and I remember looking at it thinking, what is going on? This is ridiculous. I had a share plan and I hadn't even started, right? <laughs> and, so, and so, and I'd done pretty well on, on convincing or negotiating with HBOS to take my worthless NAB options. And to convert them to HBOS oh, no. stock. And for, and for the listeners who don't know what shorting is, it's basically selling against. Yeah, they were just sell, yeah, selling it as if it was going. Expecting it to go down. Down, correct. Selling against yeah, it. yeah, selling against it. So uh, so it was being shorted. It was the first sign of cracks for the UK in uh, the GFC. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> just start your job. Well, I hadn't even started. I was starting that Monday. <laughs> so I literally arrived and they're like, 
oh, have you heard about what's happening in the UK? I'm like, yep, I have. Um, and then I had the pleasure or not of going to the UK in June of that year, June of 2008, and I went to Edinburgh. And there was a place there called The Mound, which is kind of iconic in the banking world. It's What is the, it? It's, it? The Mound is just a part of Edinburgh where all the banks have started kind of thing. Yeah, and it's and uh, HBOS had its headquarters there. Okay. It's like next to the castle. It's, it's okay. a mythical thing, yeah. the mound. Anyway, it's so the, 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 amazing the place to visit. of all the banks. Yeah, yeah, well, and, and Scotland's got a very strong banking tradition. Um, they would describe themselves as prudent bankers. Okay. Uh, and so I'm in the mound. With, it's steeped in these centuries of banking history. I'm at a uh, shareholders meeting. And one shareholder after another is having a crack at the HBOS board. You don't know what you're doing. We're going to hell in a handbasket. You don't. None of you understand banking. It just they just kept coming and coming and coming. I'm sitting there thinking, what is going on here? Uh, and I turned to my um, Australian directors and said to them, "Are we in like are we in strife? Is this? I've only been there for a few months." So I said, well, "Are we in strife?" They went, "Oh yeah." <laughs> We're in a lot of strife. I went, oh, my God, okay. And that day they got approval to do the largest preference share capital raising in UK history. At that time they raised $3 billion wow. to help save HBOS. As it turned out, they could have raised $10 billion. It wouldn't have mattered. <laughs> but no one knew that on the day. So I remember leaving Edinburgh thinking, oh, my God, we're gone. Came back to Australia and, and I was right, we were. And uh, at the time in, in the Australian organisation, Bankwest was a part of it uh, and HBOS was quite an active business and commercial bank uh, and, uh, and had the wealth management company I was running uh, and the Reserve Bank got a call from the Bank of England in late September of 2008 and the Reserve Bank was asked by the Bank of England if they knew anyone who could buy HBOS Australia and the Reserve Bank of Australia called all the big Australian banks and asked them if they were interested. And as it turned out, the Commonwealth Bank stepped up. And that's up. how you ended up <laughs> back. Right. No way. As I ended up at CBA. But see, everything happens for a reason. But everything happens for a reason. And just briefly on that, um, Ralph Norris was the chief executive of CBA at the time. And that's Sir Ralph. He's mm -hmm. a knight in New Zealand. And um, he came in. We were in Perth uh, at the time. And he came into a meeting of the Australian executive of HBOS Australia. Uh, not including our CEO, uh, and we were all running our own businesses. And he sat next to me and just said to everyone, look, I know this isn't what you planned for. As you know, we're buying you out. Uh, you know, a lot of you aren't probably going to have jobs with the Commonwealth Bank, but I'm really interested to hear from you all. And so just give me a minute or two and we're going to go around the table. Well, at least he had good uh, effective <laughs> leadership communication skills. And I'm like, oh, my God, Brutal I'm truth. sitting next to him thinking, don't go right, don't go right, don't go right, please go left. He went right. So what's your name? Adrian. Oh, hi, Adrian. Um, you know, what do you plan to do? I said, Ralph, I want a job with the Commonwealth Bank. <laughs> <laughs> he gave you it. And he said, is that it? I went, yep, that's it, mate. <laughs> and I made the decision, just keep it brief and just be really clear. I want a job, which I did. Mm-hmm. And others made the mistake of going on. Like, oh, well, you know, what about this and what about that and what about our options and what about this? I'm like, he remembered you. You're burying yourselves, yeah, the right? The guy wants a job. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it worked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, and so, good. what have you learned? So, the, I mean, there's one, two, three, four, fourth currently, but what have you learned in leadership through a crisis? Yeah. So, what I've learned is that um, I think touched on a little bit earlier. Yes. So, the, the power of that communication uh, and the frequency of communication. Uh, don't should increase. Should increase. It needs to step up. In fact, I would say it's probably only at the right level when you think you're overdoing it. Okay. 
and then realize there's only a certain number of messages you can get through. So don't try to give a thousand messages. Just work out what the handful of things are and just keep saying it and saying it and saying it. And how would you yeah. pick those messages? Oh, that's the hard bit. So yeah. you've got to try to work out what are the key things that you need to get through. But they're going to have to be around where are we at, where are we heading, why, what's expected of you. So give them clarity okay. where we're at, where we're heading. Uh, and again, I'd say it's only once it starts getting boring for the leader, you're probably getting through. So you said it once, you said it twice, you said it three times. No, no, you need to say it seven to ten times maybe in slightly different ways, mm -hmm. to get the message through because not everyone's listening every time you say it. They're distracted, they're thinking, they're doing what they're doing. So I think the frequency is yep. critical, the consistency of message is critical, be willing to ask questions and listen. So I know I don't have all the answers. They know you don't have all the answers, so don't pretend that you do because that's going to be called out pretty quickly. And even if they don't say it to you, they'll say it to each other. So ask them what do you think we should do? What would be your suggestions on how to handle this? Who would like to get involved in the discussion on who wants to be a part of the solution too? So give them an opportunity to get involved is really critical as well. Uh, but when all's said and done, you know, everyone's got to realise that um, even if it's going to be very challenging, anything can be overcome if everyone's actually working on it together. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think that's a really key message. Anything can be overcome. Anything, yeah. And back to the question I had before, how do you plan for a worst-case scenario? Yeah, it's really difficult. I feel that um, I've been, I think, Daniel, I'd say I've lived a blessed life, but I've also had the benefit of grandstand seats at some pretty crappy events. Um, and um, and I've, I've got this philosophy around if you've seen it and it hasn't hurt you, then you're okay, right? So, um, you know, whether it's as we talked about the, the recession, the stock market crash, the GFC, I recovered from them all and was better off for them. Mm -hmm. um, even my 9-11 experience in New York. and that was, that was going to be the last witnessing, thing I asked you actually. Witnessing that horrible event uh, and seeing both planes go into the North and South Tower. Uh, again, I had a grandstand seat on an outrageously horrible, horrible thing. Um, but again, what, what do you learn from that? I think what you learn is, is that how you respond to a situation, particularly as a leader, tells the story. So I often would say to, to yourself and other friends or other people that I spend some time with, I would often say, I can't control which cards you're dealt. You can't control which cards you're dealt. I can't control whether there's a COVID-19, a 9-11, a GFC, a stock market crash, a deep recession. I don't know anyone that can control that. But I can control how I respond. So you can control how you respond as an individual uh, as a friend, as a family member, as a leader of business. You can't control the cards you're dealt. You can control how you play your cards and how you respond. And as we noted earlier, if you go in with the growth mindset, if you go in knowing that you're going to overcome this and you're going to be better off for it, then as we talked about, you can't lose. You either win or you learn. And I just think it's just critical to maintain a positive growth attitude. If you're down and out, it will turn out that way. If you drop your bundle, it'll turn out that way. On the sporting field, they talk about the teams that drop their heads. They lose. They drop their heads. They've given up. The ones that don't give up, even in absolute adversity, could still win, but they'll definitely learn. So I think the key thing, regardless of the drama, has been I can't control the drama. I've witnessed it. I've survived it. Now it's about bouncing back higher and it's just about being better than you were prior to that event. Just don't drop your head. Just don't drop your head. Yeah. That's awesome advice. And Hondo, just to wrap up, um, 
I guess, is there, are there any of the key lessons or a last thought you'd like to leave the, the listeners with, something that you think is crucial? Yeah, so um, hopefully we've touched on a number of things. I think the lots of different things. I think one thing I would like to mention that I've learned recently and everyone always, always needs to keep learning is just this uh, the, the Mandarin word for crisis, um, you know, weiji, uh, and it literally means danger and opportunity. So a little bit along the lines of you can't control the cards you dealt but you can control the cards you hold. Uh, and I do think that what we all need to remember is, yes, this is a crisis. It's a health crisis. It's an economic crisis. It's a global pandemic. None of us have ever seen it before and hopefully we never see it again, but there's a risk we might. Uh, and what I would say is, is that don't lose sight of the fact that while we're planning for the worst and protecting our businesses, our families, our personal circumstances against worst-case scenarios, there's always opportunity. And I think the business leaders that recognise that and the businesses that can still pursue opportunity crisis, they're the ones that bounce back higher. Love that. Hondo, this has been an incredible conversation. Honestly, one of the just one of the best conversations I've had in life in regards to learning and obviously specifically in leadership. I'm very grateful for everything you've ever done for me. Oh, thank you, and man. I'm sure the listeners are very grateful for your time today too. So thank, thank you, you so much for coming in. Thank you, mate. Appreciate it. Hope you enjoy the show.